You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is Brian McClanahan, your host, and this is episode 67, covering the week of April 10th through 14th, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. First, a little housekeeping. Remember, if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. Also, go to our Facebook page and like us there. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on YouTube. And if you would like to support the Institute, we exist on your generous contributions alone. You can make a tax-deductible contribution at abbevilleinstitute.org. Go to the top of the page under Support, and you will find a tab for Memberships for Individuals. Uh, You can donate monthly, as little as $3 a month if you're a student, or you can donate per year. So uh, we'd love to uh, have your support, and the only way we're going to continue to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition is with your help. Also, we have our summer school coming up in July, July 9th through 14th, 2017, at Seabrook Island, South Carolina. If you would like more information on that, you can click on that on our homepage. Uh, Spaces are limited, and they are filling up, so if you would like to go, if you're a student, uh, a an advanced high school student, college undergraduate, or a graduate student, we do have scholarships available, so please contact Dr. Livingston. Again, all of that information is available on our website. Okay, so let's talk about the material for this week. Uh, There's actually a number of anniversaries this week. If you look at some of the things that were going on, we had, had, of course, Jefferson's birthday on April 13th. We had uh, the anniversary of the firing on Fort Sumter. We had the anniversary of uh, Lee's surrender, Uh, and we also had the anniversary of the last, or at least uh, in this week's period, the last battle east of the Mississippi. And so we covered a a, a few of those anniversaries uh, during this week. So that was the kind of the general theme. And also our piece on Tuesday got into this idea of what it means to be a Southern historian. So there are so many things to talk about this week. And again, I'm going to try to condense it down to about 30 minutes Uh, because there is a lot to uh, get into, so let's go ahead and and get started with it. Okay, so our piece on Monday by Bo Trawick, entitled Confederate Monuments, gets into this uh, self-righteous hypocrisy that we find in the attacks, the PC attacks on the South, or the PC attacks on uh, Confederate monuments. And uh, I think Trawick does an excellent job of pointing out that if we really want to be uh, fair in our assessment of American history, then we need to bring up the fact that, of course, uh, slavery was not confined to the South, uh, that Northerners had as much involvement in the institution, at least early on, as Southerners did when you get into the trade, uh, and that many people have figured this out uh, over time. But it seems to me that the, and it seems to be actually, that the only thing that ever comes under attack are Confederate monuments, and if we want to be fair, again, we should be going after everything that had to do with slavery. And so you're going to start tearing down all kinds of things in the United States if you start looking at the true history of slavery, the history of uh, the institution in relation to the North, and of course, the history of the history of the institution in, in comparison to, say, Africa itself, and the fact that slavery was uh, a profitable institution for Africans in Africa. It wasn't just Europeans who were making money on this. Also, Africans were doing that as well. And so uh, it's interesting how that part of the, of the entire story is often whitewashed. Uh, we don't hear about that a whole lot, but of course we do hear about Confederate symbols and, and Confederate monuments and uh, this idea that the, the South was the only 
section of the United States that had any sin whatsoever in the institution of slavery. And of course, it's just simply not true. Uh, one thing he, he does say at the end of this piece that I think is great, um, he, he says this, quote, secession had many causes, but the war had only one. Uh, and that was secession, right? It was the idea that the North had to keep the South in the Union. It was therefore decided, he said, in Northern financial councils that to drive the Southern states back into the Union at the point of a bayonet in the bloodiest war in the history of the Western Hemisphere would be preferable to the loss of a Yankee dollar. However, one will not hear anything about this because it repudiates our secessionist heritage of 1776 and puts the portrait of Abraham Lincoln on the wall alongside of George III. This, then, is a real reason that these Confederate monuments must come down. They speak truth to power. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, the Confederate symbols are a symbol of defiance. And, again, we've talked about that on this podcast before. But that is the one thing that people around the world have viewed these symbols as, as symbols of defiance to central authority. Uh, this is why when you saw the, uh, the, in the 1980s when there was the resistance to the East German, communist East German, or East German regime, you had Confederate battle flags there. Um, so people, were, people see the symbol. You had Confederate battle flags in Tiananmen Square. People around the world see the Confederate flag not as a symbol of racism or slavery. They see it as a symbol of self-determination and defiance. More than anything else, that's what people around the world view it as. And so here in America, this thing has been compared to the swastika. It's un-American. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Uh, so it's unfortunate that we're, that's where we've gotten to. And I think, and I mentioned that in the piece that I wrote on Friday, and I think that has a lot to do with how we view the war. I mean, uh, and, and view uh, Southerners themselves as somehow un-American uh, for uh, pursuing self-determination. So, um, you know, Trawick does a very good job in this piece, you know, saying, look, maybe Northerners need to live up to their own past. Maybe African-Americans need to live up to their own past because there's, there's skeletons in everyone's closet. And um, I think that when you start looking at history in that particular way, uh, that symbol, the Confederate symbol, Confederate monuments, these type of things, should be respected and maintained rather than torn down and, de and demonized. So uh, it's important that uh, we realize the complexity of all of uh, American history, but particularly uh, Southern history as well. And that's, that actually bridges us into the piece on Tuesday, Tolerating the South's Past. And this particular piece was written by Francis Butler Simpkins in 1963. And it was in his uh, book, The Everlasting South. And the thing that Simpkins does here that's it's really good is he talks about how you can actually write Southern history without uh, being dishonest. Uh, and so we have this, this view, this is, this is where we get into what's called the lost cause myth, right? That there's somehow Southerners are making things up and they're, they're completely leaving out certain parts of Southern history uh, in order to uh, make themselves look better. And I don't think that you can really say that. Um, I think that what Southerners do when they write their history is uh, try to talk about the good and not just the bad. And there was much to say about Southern history that's good, and essentially that's why this piece was important for this particular, uh, for our website, but also for the mission of the Abbeville Institute. There's much you can say about the South that's good and beneficial, and beneficial for America today. I've said this before on the podcast, but the South is America. And so when we look at that concept, there's so much we can say about the South that we could emulate, so many things that we could take from Southern history and say, you know, that would be good for America. And he says you can write Southern history 
you can write about poor whites in the South. You can write about uh, you can write about African Americans in the South. You can write about uh, the Southern plantation system. You can write about all these things. You can write about Southern economy. You can write about Southern literature and Southern art. You can write about all of those things, and you can find good things to talk about. You can also be honest and talk about the bad things, and that's fine. But the South is complex, and I think that's the thing that Simpkins is trying to get into more than anything else. You have to recognize the South for what it is. And just because you write about it doesn't mean necessarily uh, that you support it. Um, you don't have to always go out of your way to say, well, I don't like this. That's writing, uh, that's writing contemporary history in so many ways. I mean, you're, you're having to say, well, I don't agree with this, but here it is. I mean, I think it would go without saying that um, for most people, uh, if you wrote about the plantation system in the South, you wouldn't be saying, well, I mean, I'm writing about this because I'm pro-slavery. Uh, you would simply be writing about it and saying, well, I mean, being objective, this is exactly what Time on the Cross was about, Fogel and Eggerman's time on, time on the Cross. These guys were not being pro-slavery, but they were being honest and objective. Same thing with Eugene Genovese when he wrote about slavery. Uh, Eugene Genovese can never be confused as someone who advocated slavery, but he found something useful and beneficial in the ideas of the slave owners. Uh, it, it would be no different than writing about Aristotle or Plato. And actually, Simpkins brings that up. Why is it that we can write about Europeans? We can write about the monarchies of Europe. We can write about Greeks. We can write about Romans. And yet we don't have to condemn them all the time for what they did or said. We can actually find valuable things in everything they did. If we can find valuable things out of a brutal slaveholding society like Rome, or we can find valuable things from Aristotle, whose politics is littered with pro-slavery dialogue, then certainly we could find something valuable about the South. We could find something valuable about Jefferson Davis or John C. Calhoun or these people that are now often relegated to the dark other of American history. We can still do that. All we have to do is recognize that the South is what it is, what it is and was what it was. And if we do that well, then the beneficial part of Southern history will come out. Uh, he also says that, look, what we need to do is talk about um, the South for what it is, and he says this, our historians should explain or justify these supposed deficiencies of the South by showing that its genius is rural, not urban. And he's talking about there the fact that the South didn't industrialize, the fact that the South didn't have the northern education system, uh, he, he says a true Southerner should take pride that the South's fame is based on tobacco, hogs, rice, and cotton, and that its greatest man is the country gentleman with his cult of hospitality, his sense of leisure, his neglect of the passion for trade, his capacity to refurbish old mansions and to build new ones in imitation of the old, and his creative interest in the rehabilitation of antique furniture. We should take pride in that. We shouldn't look at it as a deficiency. And so this is actually rather rather interesting because oftentimes we sweep that aside and say, well, this is just backwards. This is, this is something we shouldn't care about because we're more interested in Wall Street than the cotton price anymore. So Simpkins uh, is doing a valuable service in this essay in writing to future Southern historians, take pride in your section and who you are as a people. You don't have to be 
so laudatory that you can just overlook some things that may have, they may have done that we don't care for. But this is the exact same thing Richard Weaver was saying back, back in the 60s. You know, we don't really want to live in the Old South, but the Old South can teach us in many ways how to live. I think that's important. That's what you can gather from Southern history and understanding the South. Not just for the South, but for America. And I think if we can do that, if we can do that, we will have a much more robust and accurate vision of what the South is and what it provides for America today. So go out and read this particular essay by Simpkins because I think it does a a great service to future historians who want to look at the South, and I hope there's a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are those people that want to do that. And he concludes by saying this one thing, quote, not all historians who rise above the level of scholarly compilations are ashamed of the peculiar standards of their section. Some of them write the literature of accommodation. The Southern historian who has won the greatest applause writes of the heroes of the Confederacy without arguing whether they were good or noble or just. The best recognized historian of the Old South pictures plantation life without assuming that it was a grand mistake. Another historian examines the, the literature of the, of the poor whites without moralizing against them because they were not as thrifty as their social betters. A recent historian of the New South joins William Faulkner in exposing the true tragedy of the South. It was not the defeat at Appomattox, but the truckling of both scalawag and bourbon, both materialist and idealist, to alien values. So on that note, we had a piece on Wednesday by Clyde Wilson entitled Jefferson New and Improved. And this uh, particular essay was published in honor of Jefferson's birthday, which was the 13th, but we ran it the day before. And it's a 1988 book review of Noble Cunningham's In Pursuit of Reason, The Life of Thomas Jefferson. And when you read this essay, of course, we, uh, we had an essay just a couple of weeks ago on Kevin Goodsman's new book, on uh, Thomas Jefferson. And when you read this essay, you'll find that there's a lot of similarities between what uh, Clyde is saying in this particular piece and what Goodsman did in his book. And that is, study Jefferson for what he was. You know, Clyde gets into the point that, well, I mean, you know, people often rail against Jefferson because he didn't have modern views on race. He says you can't expect him to do that. He was a man of the 18th century, a man of the early 19th century. He was a man of his time. And by doing that, uh, you are, you're actually destroying what Thomas Jefferson was. Uh, and so you can't, ex- you can't expect Jefferson to be a 21st century man. That's actually more problematic than anything else. Jefferson was not, and of course, you know, people talk about his inconsistencies. Well, he was a guy that talked about emancipation but then didn't do it. Well, Jefferson was a man of his time, and uh, when you look at the complexities surrounding the issue in the 18th century or the 19th century, you might understand why. He also points out that Jefferson was more concerned about federalism than anything else, that it was his adherence to this idea of what's now called states' rights that actually defined Jefferson for almost all of his political career, if not all of his political career. That's that's the point that uh, Goodsman made, that Jefferson was consistent until the end in that adherence to federalism. And so this is why actually Clyde has called Jefferson a conservative, because of that belief in federalism. Uh, he was conservative when it came to views on, so- on society at large. When you read his notes on Virginia, 
Uh, you'll find that. Jefferson was not some you know, radical egalitarian that he's often made out to be. Um, he did have some, some ideas on things like education or freedom of conscience that you could say, well, I mean, they were uh, to the left of Virginia society. But again, his, his vision only extended to his mountains. That's it. Uh, and he did believe in his fellow man, his fellow Virginian, I should say, not necessarily those, as Clyde points out, in Massachusetts or Connecticut, but those in his own state. He believed in those people, and he believed they were capable of self-government, that, that they could make good decisions. So Jefferson was not a Democrat, a universalist Democrat. He was only interested in the republicanism of his people because he trusted those people to make good choices and make good decisions. He didn't trust the people of Massachusetts or Connecticut to make good choices or good decisions, and you find that if you read his writing enough. He, he says these things. And I think one thing you can also say about this piece is that it speaks to what uh, Simpkins was saying. Take Jefferson for what he was. Don't try to make him into something he wasn't. Uh, and one thing that Clyde points out, again, this, this idea of federalism. In his own time, he says this, quote, In his own time and several generations later, the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, affirming state sovereignty, were the core of his political position. They weren't some aberration, as some historians like to say. Uh, he says, quote, The real Jefferson, by modern interpretation, put freedom ahead of states' rights. This is to indulge in a too easy makeover of Jefferson to please ourselves and to miss the main point, which is that for Jefferson and his followers, the two were synonymous and inextricable. It is self-evident in the historical record for those who have eyes to see, obvious to anyone who will read Jefferson's correspondence from the 1790s to the 1820s, or who will examine the context, the understanding of what his career meant to his supporters in his own time. So, again, that's that point of federalism. States' rights meaning federalism. Clyde also says, quote, In fact, Jefferson's view would still work. Could we restore real federalism and limit the central government to war, diplomacy, and a few other necessary common functions, we could come as close as possible to an imperfect world in settling our major social problems. There is, in fact, no other possible solution for abortion, rampant crime, deteriorating education, and many other evils than a resumption of power close to the people. So Clyde wrote this in 1988. And, of course, 30 years later, we're certainly talking about federalism more than we have in a long period of time. It just takes some time for these ideas to take hold. But this is taking Jefferson for what he was, not what we want him to be. And I think that's what uh, Simpkins was also saying. Don't take the South for what you want it to be. Take it for what it was. Uh, find the valuable in it because there's much to write about the true South and, be, and take pride in that. It is what it was. Uh, there's no reason to, to uh, say that you know, it's, it's awful. You don't have to justify it or demonize it, neither one. You just take it for what it was, and then you find the things that Southerners said which were valuable, and you promote those. And that's what we try to do here. Jefferson's views on federalism are still current. Uh, when you look at you know, Dabney and Thornwell and what uh, Southern theologians were saying about society after the war was over and the dangerous leveling spirit that was taking place in America and what that was going to do, uh, 
Well, you see it. Um, for example, just uh, this is outside the scope of the podcast, but uh, there was just a piece that was published in the Huffington Post talking about what we need to do. It was written by a, a feminist author. What we need to do is take away the ability for white males to vote for about 20 or 30 years and then give it back to them after we level everything out in society. That's exactly what Dabney and Thorwell were saying was going to happen. And so when you look at those things, you say, gosh, they were, they were prescient. They were, on, they, were, they were right on the money. Uh, and we can do this with the, with the so-called anti-federalists, who are actually the real federalists. We can say, well, they were, they were right when they said this is exactly what's going to happen, and it did. It's not to say that we would uh, today in the 21st century support their lifestyle or things that they did, but they were right about so many things. They were right about the nature of government, about the nature of society, and this egalitarian or leveling spirit that was going to take hold of America and what it was going to do, ultimately. So uh, I think that's what we need to do more than anything else. And of course, then we get into that with the Thursday piece, uh, What Was Lost 150 Years Ago by Boyd Cathy. And um, you know he wrote this in honor of April 9th. Um, and he wrote about uh, the surrender of Lee. And he says, quote, That war in reality was not a civil war. That is, it was not a war between two aggrieved parties within the American nation. Rather, it was a war between two ideas of government and, in reality, two ideas of history and progress. For the North, which now controlled the federal government, it was a war to suppress what was seen as rebellion against constituted national authority. For the states of the Southern Confederacy, it was a defense of their inherited and inherent rights under the old Constitution of 1787, rights that had never been ceded to the federal government. And more, it became for them a second war of independence against an arbitrary and overreaching government that had gravely violated the Constitution. Uh, And so he points out that when the South lost, we lost a roadblock in the road to centralized government. He says, but even more significantly, there was a sea of change in what we might call the dominant American philosophy. And so that's what he says more than anything else, is that uh, something happened when that war was over. There was a shift, and that's because the idea of progress started taking over. 19th century, century liberalism took over. And he brings up this point that I just made. Not just George Fitzhugh, but other notable writers such as George Frederick Holmes, James Henley Thornwell, and Robert Louis Dabney questioned the progressivist narrative and defended the, the status of Southern society. The stasis, I should say. For them, the stasis was not the same thing as static and backward, but rather an understanding that an equilibrium, equilibrium in society ordered not under the unchanging rules of God's law and the laws of nature, was the surest way to meet, sift through, and verify the many challenges offered by the ideologues or the ideologies of the times. It was essentially a conservative vision. These Southern writers did not oppose all progress, but then much of the progress they viewed around them was illusory and destructive, not only of their society, but of their very existence as a people. And so he brings up uh, one of the great Southern generals, but philosophers. He was a philosopher general, James Johnson Pettigrew, who actually Clyde Wilson wrote his dissertation on, and then that was later published in a wonderful biography. And his notes on Spain and the Spaniards um, 
it's, uh, it's fantastic because it's more of a philosophy of life. Uh, it wasn't just a view of Spain. It was a view of Western civilization. And so I think that more than anything else is what was lost. In fact, um, as, as Kathy says, Pettigrew, as did other contemporary Southern men of intellect, recognized that there were stark differences between his beloved Southland and an increasingly industrialized North. He sums that, up, that belief up once again in notes on Spain when leaving France and entering Spain, a land in which he visualized analogously to his own Southern homeland. He says, quote, due to a civilization which reduces men to machines, which sacrifices half that is stalwart, an individual in humanity to the false glitter of centralization and to the luxurious enjoyments of manufacturing a money age. And so that's what was lost. And so Kathy concludes it that in the benighted American nation, besotted by cultural decadence and political corruption and intrigue, is ever to recover. It could do no better than to revisit the insights of men like Pettigrew and Dabney, the constitutionalism of Calhoun, and the moral discussions of James Henley Thornwell. Absolutely. This is, what, this is why we do what we do, because we want to make sure that stuff stays alive, and the Internet has helped us do that more than anything else. We want to explore that part of the Southern tradition. What is true and valuable? And it's there. It's in that. In this short little essay that uh, Dr. Kathy uh, gave us in that short little essay. It's there. And because of the internet, we can access all of these different documents, Thornwell and Dabney and, and uh, Pettigrew and Calhoun and Jefferson. And of course, John Taylor of Caroline and St. George Tucker and John Randolph of Roanoke. All of this stuff is there to read and see and to find what is true and valuable in that. I mean, it was this resistance to this modernism, I think, that um, was so important. And, and Dr. Cathy's right. The South actually saw themselves as progressive in many ways and um, in a different form of humanity. Uh, they, they did see themselves that way. Uh, it was a nostalgic progressivism in some ways. It wasn't what you had out of the, out of the North, this 19th century liberalism, but it was something else. They viewed their society as, as best in the state that it existed. And so as we read these, these men, and we read what they said, and we read what they did, um, I think it becomes so clear that uh, one thing we could get out of, out of the South for the future, again, is something Weaver said. I'm going to go back to that. It wasn't that we want to live in the Old South, but they can teach us how to live. So on Friday, we ran a piece entitled The Hard Hand of War, written by yours truly, that talks about the last uh, major battle of the war uh, east of the Mississippi, and that was the Battle of Columbus. And... Um, it took place uh, on April 16th, 1865, so on, a on Easter Sunday, um, just like it is uh, this Sunday coming up. That's when the battle happened. And I get into also the invasion of North Alabama by the Union. 
and what happened in the occupation of North Alabama and how the Union, the, the Southerners there called them Lincoln's hordes. And um, this is exactly what you hear now is saying, people are saying, that's a myth, that never happened. Both of the, the two books that I focus on in this uh, review, uh, Joseph Danielson's Wars, Desolating Scourge, The Union's Occupation of North Alabama, and uh, Charles Musulia's Columbus, Georgia, 1865, The Last True Battle of the Civil War. Both of these books, written uh, within the last decade, uh, I think really do much to dispel the idea that this kind of, these kind of uh, war crimes didn't take place. They did. Uh, Columbus, Georgia was burned to the ground, essentially, by the Union Army. And they plundered and looted the countryside as they came through Columbus on the Alabama side and the Georgia side. On the Alabama side in North Alabama, it was uh, authorized from the highest levels to go and abuse Southern civilians who were being defiant. And it was mainly women. That's one thing we, we often forget. It was mainly the women who were being abused in this, not the men. If you read people like Drew Gilpin Fowle, she would say, well, I mean, the, really the only thing that happened here is these Southern women got up and they started rioting. Uh, and what's remarkable is that you had this Battle of Columbus, and you had the city burned, and the last historical monument to be put up you know, was based on Drew Gilpin Faust's creation of Confederate nationalism. It talks about the women's riot in Columbus, Georgia. Um, how about the fact that the Union Army plundered the city and looted it? Uh, but no, 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 that's, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about the women uh, who were wanting bread. Uh, but what, what they miss in all that is the deprivations that many women were willing to go through to support the cause. In fact, the women were more ardent patriots than the men oftentimes. They, they chastised the men for surrendering. They couldn't believe they did it. Oftentimes, men would go off to war because the women would tell them, you're not a man if you don't. So, this is what the story of the occupation of the South really is. And I know Brian Sisko's, uh, Walter Brian Sisko's, uh, War Crimes Against Southern Civilians. It's a great book, uh, and, it, and it, it gets into this. Uh, but again, that's just seen, ah, oh, that's just lost cause nonsense. Well, here are two books. Neither one of these guys would be considered to be a pro-Southern partisan. Uh, Masula is a, not a professional historian. He, um, he has, when I understand, a... Uh, a business uh, doing uh, reproduction firearms and things of that nature. Uh, and Danielson is a uh, community college uh, professor in Iowa. He, I think he went to the University of Alabama, uh, but he just teaches at community college in Iowa. He's not, uh, he's not a Southerner, uh, I don't believe. Uh, he's not someone who's pro-South. But he wrote this book, and you find even in the book you find that it's not uh, it's not very pro South. But he just is honest about what he found in the documents. This is exactly what happened in North Alabama. But the important part about this, and I say this at the end of the piece, I say, "quote These crimes are often brushed aside as regrettable, but a regrettable but necessary part of war." George W. Bush era crony Karl Rove praised the Union F war effort in a review of Donaldson's book calling the Confederate soldier the enemy. But I say Rove's opinion is indicative of a larger problem, one that a careful reading of both Danielson's and Masula's books can correct. Danielson is not pro-South, far from it, but he honestly portrayed Union actions in North Alabama. But he says, I say both books correct the notion that Southerners were traitors who deserved the beating they took, that the Union Army was a victorious band of moral crusaders, and that the majority of Southerners were duped by the plantation oligarchy into fighting and supporting a war they did not want. Certainly, Rove did not gather that from the book, 
but his Republican-colored glasses hid the real tragedy of the conflict. And I say, then say this, antebellum Southerners were Americans who had a different vision of American government and society. And the war set the South back both physically and economically for decades. Did any group of Americans deserve that? And if not, could there have been another way? Perhaps the hard hand of war imposed upon the South by Lincoln's hordes was unnecessary. At the very least, Americans should consider it barbaric. But that will require a reassessment of the modern American historical narrative. And that's exactly what this week was about. We have to reassess the modern historical narrative. If we take these men, these Southerners, as real Americans, as generations of Americans did, Lee's a great American, Jackson's a great American, Davis is a great American, then we start having a different view of what happened in that war. It becomes a tragedy, not a glorious event in saving the Union. What Union was saved? The Southern view that it was a tragedy becomes the mainstream view if you take these men as great Americans. And so I think that's what we should be looking at more than anything else in our uh, assessment of Southern history and the, and the past and what the South has to offer. The South is America. Southerners were Americans and are Americans. And if we have that vision, then American history becomes much different and much better. So I hope you enjoyed this week of our podcast. And until next time, good day. <laughs>